Welcome to All Sides with Anna Staber. We're talking about the foster care system in Ohio this hour, and we begin with a tragedy. An early morning Amber Alert awoke many of us last week. Police were searching for five-year-old Darnell Taylor and Pammy May, the Franklin County woman who had been entrusted to care for him. The search ended for Darnell when May reportedly told police where to find his body, in a sewer in southern Columbus. The case has raised questions about whether warning signs were missed or how a system designed to protect children like Darnell let him fall through the cracks. Joining us now is Scott Britton, Assistant Director of the Public Children's Services Association of Ohio, which is made up of all the state's county children's services. Welcome to All Sides, Scott. Thank you, Anna. Before we get started, I want to quickly note that we also invited Franklin County Children's Services to join us this hour, but they declined, instead sending a statement that said, Like so many in our community, Franklin County Children's Services wants to get more answers in this case and find justice for young Darnell. We expect more information about this case will become public over the next several days and weeks as the matter moves through the initial steps of the criminal process. With that being said, Scott, I know you can't get into the specifics of the case, but I do want to review what we know for folks who maybe haven't been following Darnell's case that closely. So according to the Franklin County Municipal Court, May has now been charged with murder, kidnapping, and child endangerment. Is that accurate? That's certainly my understanding. I mean, this is a tragic case, and and my condolences go out to everybody who loved and cared for Darnell. And this all stems from a 911 call made by Pammy's husband around 3 a.m. on February 14th where he reportedly told the dispatcher that he couldn't find Darnell in the family home and was worried that his wife might have hurt him. Is that an accurate assessment of how this started? Well, I should clarify, Anna, that I only know what I've read in the papers. Um, (laughs) We're a nonprofit membership association. We don't have jurisdiction over children's services. We're not a government agency. So I know nothing more than, than what you do. According to court records, May held her hand over her husband's mouth when he tried to make this call, saying that she, quote, had a plan and then abruptly left the home. She was found wandering in the Cleveland area wearing a nightgown and later allegedly told investigators where they could find Darnell's body. She was arrested and is now being arraigned in Franklin County courts. The documents allege that she suffocated Darnell around 11 p.m. on February 13th hours before her husband called 911. And there was some confusion early on about the legal relationship between Darnell and Pammy. And I'm hoping this is where you can help clear some confusion up between kinship care, foster care, legal guardians. What do these words mean? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, I should say that at On any given day, there are about 15,000 children who are in the temporary or permanent custody of a children's services agency. They may be placed in a kinship home uh, with the goal of reunifying with the family. They may be placed in a foster home or in a residential facility. But kinship care is a term that's a lot bigger than children's services. We have, and I'm sure Barb Turpin later in the show will share with you, we have 100,000 
grandparents raising grandchildren in Ohio and tens of thousands of more aunts and uncles and friends and neighbors who step up to uh, take care of kids when their parents cannot. And most of that happens outside of child welfare as it should. Our agencies only get involved when there may be abuse or neglect. Yeah, and there seems to be uh, in this case that Darnell's maternal grandparents had him for at least some period of time. So there was perhaps that informal kinship care arrangement. That sounds possible. And, and you know, we I don't want this single incident to cast a shadow on all of the blood relatives and family friends who step up to care for kids. They really are heroes. They're keeping these kids in their culture, oftentimes in their community with familiar faces. And we know through research that kinship care uh, tends to have much better outcomes long-term for children than those who are in foster care. I have to imagine it's less disruptive going to live with a grandparent versus a stranger. Absolutely. And in this case, it sounds like legal custody was granted to the family, which means that they went before a judge who decided to make a permanency decision for the child, as often happens. Um, and uh, and the goal was for, for that child to grow up in that family. Uh, we, uh, we really rely, or we really believe, I should say, that children should grow up in families. And when that can't be with their parents, we work hard to search for and engage family members uh, who can take uh, either temporary or permanent custody of these children. Yeah, Franklin County Children's Services told the Columbus Dispatch that there was a substantiated allegation of physical abuse or neglect from about March of 2022. That was before he went to live with Pammy May and her husband. So it sounds like they have been involved or they were involved in Darnell's life for the last couple of years. But what are some of the reasons why Child Protective Services gets involved in these cases in the first place? Well, I should clear up a myth that cases of extreme physical abuse, sexual abuse, and and extreme neglect are actually quite rare. Uh, And fortunately, child fatalities are also very rare. Um, Typically, we get involved in much grayer, more complex situations, and uh, there may be domestic violence, there may be substance use disorder, there may be mental uh, illness uh, in the case of of one in four kids who come into custody, they come in not primarily because of abuse or neglect, but primarily because of behavioral health, developmental or intellectual disabilities or juvenile justice involvement. And so Children's Services gets involved uh, because somebody in the community, maybe a mandated reporter, calls with a concern and it rises to the level of sending a government agent out to knock on the door. And it really is one of the most complex and difficult services that counties offer out there. Our caseworkers are knocking on doors, not always knowing what's on the other side. And uh, that type of intervention can be extremely traumatic for families and children. We also want to invite you to join this conversation this hour about child welfare in Ohio, whether you have personal experience with the foster care system or a comment that you think would add to our conversation. You can give us a call at 614-292-8513 or email allsides at wosu.org. And at some point in the case with Darnell, Uh, According to interviews that his maternal grandparents have given with other news outlets, 
Uh, at some point, Pammy May, who was a family friend, according to the grandparents, agreed to take custody of Darnell. And she takes him in about May of last year. And then the grandmother, Shonda McGee, alleged to Cleveland 19 that she stopped having contact with him and raised concerns about May and what was going on on multiple occasions. Now, I know you're not able to comment on those kinds of things specifically, but let's make it a hypothetical. If a biological family member raises concerns about a foster parent, how are those complaints supposed to be handled? What are best practices? Well, and just to clarify, it doesn't sound like they were ever foster parents. Mm. Uh, but uh, That's a good what point. it sounds Thank like you. to me is that this family went before a judge and the judge granted legal custody of Darnell, which is a really great solution in a lot of ways because you don't have to terminate the parents' rights. They retain some residual rights to, to visitation. And you can go back before a judge uh, to uh, to address any concerns. I mean, I should say that Child Protective Services is a system with many partners, many players. The Children's Services Agency is just one of them. We work very closely with law enforcement and prosecutors and community providers, CASA volunteers, guardians ad litem, and, and all of us come at it from very different perspectives often. And we're all striving for what we call the best interest of the child, but we don't always agree on that. And so a judge ultimately makes the decision about the temporary or permanent custody of, of where that child is. And when these kinds of placements happen outside the system, what vetting does, say, the family friend get from the court? I can't speak to much that happens outside of the children's services system. When our agencies place uh, with kin, we do a, a home approval uh, review to ensure some basic safety factors are in place. Uh, but uh, it's not, and for good reason, it's not as extensive as a foster care licensing process. And I think that's something people don't completely understand is that if I say was struggling to take care of my children, I could go to my mother and we could work out an agreement. It could even be a legal agreement with a judge that she would temporarily take my kids for a few months while I got back on my feet. And that would all be happening outside of the system, correct? That's correct. And there are some forms uh, that uh, exist in Ohio, uh, a grandparent uh, affidavit and uh, power of attorney form that can be signed over so that the grandparents have the right to enroll the children in school or take them to the doctor. Uh, and all of that can happen outside of the Children's Services Agency. Um, but uh, typically for long term situations, a judge does need to be involved. And what kind of support do foster care parents and families get? Uh, you know, in this case specifically, it sounds like there may have been something going on with Pammy May for the last couple of months. It's still early. We don't know exactly what the circumstances were. But I was sort of wondering as I was preparing for this show is that we know the children are getting very often a social worker, a therapist, a medical doctor. There may be a whole team and wraparound services for the child there's often a whole team and wraparound services for the family, particularly if they need counseling or help before reunification. What kind of services are offered to the people who take these children into their homes? 
Well, if they are foster parents uh, and licensed foster homes, they, they have training requirements. Uh, they can request a, a variety of services, like you say, a lot of it depending on uh, a case plan. Uh, ideally, they're working with the birth parents to, to toward that reunification opportunity. Uh, and they're receiving uh, monthly, at least monthly visits from, uh, from agency caseworkers. Uh, the supports for kinship caregivers are different, but I would say that there are certainly more options for kinship caregivers to get financial support now than there were just five years ago. And I'm sure Barb will talk more about this later, but there are some new programs under Governor DeWine and the General Assembly uh, that provide more financial supports, most of them geared toward getting these kinship caregivers licensed so that they can become official foster parents. Uh, but uh, we have a new kinship and adoption navigator uh, hotline that kinship caregivers can call to uh, to to ask for resources and supports. Uh, we have new uh, various payment programs depending on whether the custody is temporary or permanent. Do they have access to any kind of low cost or no cost therapy or like like a, a mentor or like a safe place where because I, I mean, I know being a parent itself is hard. I imagine being a foster parent is also hard. It is. Uh, and I think that's why all of us have a responsibility really to uh, to be on the lookout for parents we know who are struggling. We all have a role to play in supporting parents, whether it be personally or whether it be going to vote next month when four children's services uh, agencies have levies on the ballot. Uh, there needs to be a strong social safety net in place because we know through research that the availability of concrete supports like housing assistance, food assistance, childcare, healthcare really make a difference in reducing involvement with uh, child protective services. I want to take a call from Eric in Columbus. Welcome to All Sides. Hello. Uh, yes, I was calling about the um, programs that they've had in the past called independent living and uh, emancipation, where they put underage children in apartments with no su adult supervision. Um, what this has happened, it is... It, my daughter had no involvement with children's services. This was 20-something years ago. They pulled her into, she got pulled in by this independent living thing. They, anyway, to make a long story short, they put her in an apartment with this guy who was. She ended up getting pregnant. This program has damaged three generations of my offspring. It's still going on. Uh, two great-grandkids in the system now. This never would have happened if you hadn't had this program for putting teenagers in apartments. And I'm, I'm going to vote no on any levy you come up with because of that. And what are your comments? Well, I think emancipation is a really complicated issue, Scott. So how does that process work? Because I do know it's basically right that a child under 18 can be granted legal adult status before their 18th birthday. Is that fair? Typically, children who are in foster care, in permanent custody of, of an agency, uh, they do receive independent living skills so that they can live independently when they do reach adulthood. 
And uh, now in Ohio, we have a program called Bridges that uh, can support youth who uh, turn 18, leave the children's services system, but can continue to receive housing and other supports until they turn 21, so long as they are working part-time or going to school part-time. It doesn't catch everybody who emancipates from our system. Some of them do. Uh, like I said, there are um, there are some negative long-term outcomes that have, have been researched uh, for youth who grow up in foster care. Um, and uh, we're, we are always working to try to, uh, to support those youth so that they can be successful. I want to ask how the opioid crisis has impacted Ohio's foster care system, particularly in Appalachian counties. Because when you look at the county by county data on how many kids or how many kids per hundred or thousand are in foster care across Ohio, the highest numbers are in those southernmost counties. Certainly, we saw a dramatic rise in the number of children coming into care in the 2010s. 2016-17, our numbers were going up. Uh, We uh, responded with a number of of efforts, including a program managed here by PCSAO called Ohio Start. It's a signature program of Governor DeWine's that uh, works with families experiencing both substance use disorder and child welfare involvement to try to keep the families together safely or reunify them safely while the parents receive uh, substance use disorder treatment. That was Scott Britton, the Assistant Director for the Public Children's Services Association of Ohio. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Anna. Coming up, we're talking with a national expert on the state of child welfare systems across America. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. We're talking about the child welfare system this hour following the tragic death of five-year-old Darnell Taylor at the hands, allegedly, of the woman who was entrusted to care for him. Here to give us a national perspective on child welfare systems across the country is Sarah Catherine Williams, Senior Research Scientist at Child Trends, the leading research organization that studies children's well-being. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you for having me. I know you've read some of the coverage of Darnell Mm -hmm. Taylor. Uh, His legal custodian was a close family friend and who allegedly, according to court documents filed recently in Franklin County, suffocated him before fleeing to Northeast Ohio. It's so incredibly sad. I, 
And hopefully you can confirm for us what uh, Scott said in the previous uh, segment, that it's also incredibly rare. It is incredibly rare. And, um, you know, this is, you know, I, I don't want to downplay the seriousness of this situation. I mean, it, it is horrific. Um, but like Scott said, luckily, these instances are rare. Um, and, you know, the attention they deservedly garner, you know, can have an effect of, you know, overstating the prevalence of an issue. Um, but again, that, that's not you know, overstating the seriousness of this issue. One of the things I learned in preparing for this episode that really shocked me was the lack of counseling services available to foster parents and kinship situations. You know, the children come with caseworkers, social workers, therapists, as they absolutely should. There is counseling for birth parents and sometimes extended birth family, which there absolutely should be. But there isn't a lot of counseling provided to the foster parents and mentors when they exist, often report back to the caseworkers, which I think can make it feel like a not-so-safe place. So I guess my question is, how can we better support foster parents? That's a, a very good point, because like as, as Scott was saying um, earlier, you know, these, uh, you know, people who, you know, take in foster children and volunteer, um, you know, their time and efforts to be foster parents, um, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a difficult situation. And um, you know, they bring um, a lot of strengths, you know, their willingness to, um, you know, to try and uh, provide help um, and support to, to other children and families. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of um, foster care licensing um, or placing agencies will offer, um, you know, peer support groups for foster parents so that they can come together and learn from one another. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's different in every state um, how these licensing standards are, are run and how child placing, um, you, know, you know, happens. And even in Ohio, it's different in every county. Um, so it's, um, you know, that, that's something that child welfare agencies are definitely, um, you know, working towards, um, not only trying to recruit more foster families, um, but trying to make sure that they have adequate support, whether that be a caseworker they can call or, you know, get timely responses from or have crisis response systems in place. But, um, you know, there are also lots of um, peer support groups that go on um, for foster families as well. We talked with Scott a bit about how the opioid crisis impacted foster the foster care system here in Ohio. But we got an email from Mindy who wanted to know how the Dobbs decision might impact the child welfare system. I don't know if it's too soon to say. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I, uh, the Dobbs decision. Yeah, that I I admit that's not something I was prepared to talk about today. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) that's the beauty of listener emails and questions, I think. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, I mean, we do know that you know, there have been some some studies, and I'm not going to talk about specific statistics, um, because again, I'm, I'm kind of responding off the cuff here. But, you know, there have been prior studies um, of women who, um, you know, have, have sought abortions and for, you know, for various reasons, were not able to, um, to, you know, to get that procedure, um, you know, looking at their outcomes or looking at the reasons why, you know, they sought to have um, you know, to, to end a, a, a pregnancy, 
Um, and a lot of those reasons are related to not feeling adequately prepared, whether that's financially stable or feeling like they have, you know, the resources for, um, you know, for childcare or, or things like that. And, you know, we, we don't make it very easy in the U.S. to raise families. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of those same kinds of things of, you know, um, you know, thinking about the reasons that children are coming into foster care. The primary reason that children come into foster care is neglect, you know, and, and that comes with a lot of, um, you know, overlap with poverty or income related issues. Um, so, I, you know, I, housing I don't insecurity, want, food insecurity. Yeah, house, yeah, all of those things, um, you know, and, and that's even just within the way we define um, you know, define uh, child neglect. And, um, you know, so, you know, a lot of those same risk factors are, are there and, and present. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a little too soon to tell and I don't want to speculate, but, um, you know, again, that was, we, um, yeah, I'm going to stop there. And if you want to throw us a curveball of a question or have a comment that you think or a perspective that would add to the conversation about child welfare systems, you can give us a call at 614 614- 292-8513 or email all sides at wosu.org. I want to talk about the bipartisan Congress congressional law, the Family First Prevention Services Act, passed in 2018. It was a landmark piece of legislation uh, that really prioritized reunification or getting kids into kinship relationships. Can you kind of walk us through how that law changed? welfare systems here in the country? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Uh, you know, family, you know, you, you did a good job of summarizing what fa- we call it family first, uh, what the Family First Act, um, you know, the main goals. And, you know, it really was aimed at, it, you know, trying to prevent children from entering foster care and trying to keep them out of congregate care settings. Um, and it was a step forward for sure. Um, but, you know, it, it hasn't been without its criticisms. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that Family First did um, was, um, you know, the in, in allowing states to seek federal reimbursement for prevention services, again, that are aimed at keeping children from coming into care, um, <clears throat> those uh, child welfare agencies can only seek reimbursement for four types of prevention services. Um, and they have to be evidence-based as determined by a rating um, on what's called the Prevention Services Clearinghouse. And, you know, the level of rigor and evaluation designs required by the clearinghouse is, is, is something else. Um, it's very difficult to design evaluations that meet those standards. And I speak as someone who's currently trying to execute such studies. Um, so it, it's been a slow rollout. Um, and, you know, I think one of the major hurdles is, is being able to get studies eligible for states to even, or programs, I should say, um, get those programs rated and eligible for states to even be able to seek, you know, reimbursement for those. And one of the criticisms uh, from foster families has been that sometimes they think reunification is pushed over the welfare of a child, unfortunately. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's often a a push and pull um, with foster families and, um, you know, reunification is the primary goal. I mean, when you look at the, you know, children that exit the foster care system, about half of them, you know, do go to, um, you know, are returned uh, to their families and, you know, we want them safely returned to their families. And, um, you know, it's a 
it, it, it's a tricky situation um, and a lot of uh, foster parents uh, feel very protective over the children that they are caring for and rightly so and that's why you know that that's what we want we want them to be protective of them but at the same time we um, <clears throat> you know there is that push and pull and, and balance of um, of remembering that you know we don't want to sever those bonds with someone's you know, biological family, if, if we can help it. Um, so that goal is, you know, still to safely reunite children with their families. Ohio recently upped its reimbursement for kinship care placements, sort of recognizing that they are essentially doing the same job as a foster parent. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you've seen nationally in the last couple of years? I can't speak to specific amounts of, you know, how, uh, you know, those reimbursement rates are calculated or, or wh- what those have changed to. But uh, there has been uh, there was a new regulation passed back in September uh, that ensures that kinship foster homes receive the same financial support as non kinship foster homes. Uh, and that gives and it also gives child welfare agencies the option to use kin specific foster care licensing standards and allowing them to do away with, you know, more stringent requirements that aren't related to safety. So, you know, like space requirements and, um, you know, that may not be, you know, appropriate for children that are living with relatives. So I would expect to see that same trend um, in other states um, as they're, uh, you know, encouraged um, to uh, provide the same financial support. Oh, that's interesting. So like if there's an aunt and an uncle with children who are willing to take the kid, maybe they can share a bedroom with their cousin or some of those requirements are different in that situation. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, if a child is placed with, you know, a stranger foster family or someone that they don't know, uh, depending on the state, you know, you may not be able to share a room with other children, which is understandable. But if you're living with your aunt, you know, you you know, sharing a room with your cousins is normal, you know, and and, and very appropriate. So, um, you know, the 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 safety standards are still supposed to be the same, um, but there are other you know things that aren't directly related to child safety um, <clears throat> that could be that could be different for relatives. I did want to ask a little bit about Darnell uh, Taylor's situation because it seems like they didn't. It was outside the foster care system. Uh, You know, he appears to have been placed with his grandparents, at least initially, and then the grandparents relinquished custody to uh, this Pammy May, uh, who was a close family friend. Uh, His grandparents have told other news outlets that she attended birthdays, like grew up around him and the family, felt like a good placement. But this is all, I mean, it's happening legally. It's happening in front of a judge, but it's still outside the traditional foster care system, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that's my understanding as well. I mean, like Scott, I, I know what I read in the newspapers, um, you know, uh, but, you know, and, and that happens. Um, it's not uncommon uh, at all for, um, you know, if a, a parent is, is struggling uh, maybe with substance use and they need to go to treatment or, you know, they just need, um, you know, time to to um, to to get themselves together. They will uh, create these, you know, go into guardianship agreements um, with uh, with relatives, um, and it, it does provide a form of legal permanency without uh, terminating parental rights. Because one thing that I think most people don't understand is that when you have a judge in the child welfare system who terminates parental rights, they're also severing your connection with the rest of your biological family. Um, and you know, that's just, that's, 
you know, it, it's just devastating. And it, it's the it's the outcome that we don't want to happen. So, um, you know, it, it, it sounds like Darnell's family, you know, thought he was placed with someone that, you know, the family trusted and knew well and thought would be appropriate. And, you know, tragically, that wasn't the case. And, it, you know, sounds like Miss May was not well. And, you know, it, it's devastating. And my heart goes out to them. Yeah, me too. Especially, you can, like, if you've watched some of the video interviews uh, with his family, you can see the pain and it would have to be so unbelievably heartbreaking to think that I don't want to call it a mistake because maybe you made the best decision with the facts that you had at the time, but the guilt just has to be overwhelming. And I, I feel so terrible for that family. But I, I do want to know, is this kind of guardianship care? Is it, is it more common than we think? Like, is it happening like all across the country? I can't speak to guardianship arrangements outside of the child welfare system, Um, but we do know in terms of children that have exited foster care um, about, uh, let's see, uh, I have that statistic, about a a little under 20% or so exit foster care to a relative or guardianship um, arrangement of some sort. Um, And that, that is a form of what we call legal permanency um, where, you know, you, you do have a, a legal relationship, um, with, uh, with someone who you know, is legally responsible for your care. So I kind of wonder, and correct me if I'm wrong here. I kind of wonder whether this feels almost like a loophole around the kind of background checks that happen for foster parents. I don't know if that's a fair characterization. I, I, I don't know if I, I yeah, I'm not sure it's diff- about that. Yeah, I think as we get more information about what happened, about how much, I mean, it's hard. I mean, I think of my very best friend who I've known for well, you know, I've known for almost two decades now. Wow. Okay. But (laughs) I think of my very best friend and I feel like I know her so much better than any caseworker ever could. And if I Mm -hmm. placed my kids in her care, I would have the utmost trust in her abilities. Yeah, no, I I, likewise, you know, I, I don't. I don't have children on my of my own, but I have friends and family who have or will leave their children to me. So, you know, I trust that, you know, they know me well enough to, um, you know, to be comfortable with me and, and know that, you know, I, I would I, I would care for them. But it's yeah, this is just such a tough situation. And I agree with what you said that I think, you know, his grandparents made the the best decision that they thought they could make at the time, given, you know, what was available to them or, or the circumstances. And um, yeah, and unfortunately, that that wasn't the case. So. But again, as we said at the beginning of this segment, it is incredibly rare for a child to die in these kinds of circumstances. Doesn't make it any less tragic, but um, it is thankfully not the norm. Most kids are, the majority of kids are returned to their biological families, or sometimes they end up being placed with loving foster families who become adoptive families. So a lot of the times the outcome is is a good one. Yes, yes. And, and I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I, you know, I, I would hate for people to lose sight um, of, uh, you know, the good that relatives and foster parents do in supporting um, you know, children who, for whatever reason, um, you know, can't uh, can't stay with their biological family. That was Sarah Catherine Williams, a senior research scientist at Child Trends. Coming up, we're learning more about kinship care, both here in Ohio and across the country. 
That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. In 2022, more than two and a half million children in the U.S. were being raised by a grandparent or other relative or a close family friend. Research shows that children typically do better when they're cared for by kin. Grandparents and other relatives step in in record numbers. And the need for financial and emotional support for kinship care is only growing. Still with us is Sarah Catherine Williams, Senior Research Scientist at Child Trends, a research organization that studies children's well-being. And joining us now is Barbara Turpin, a board member of the Ohio Grandparent Kinship Coalition. Welcome to All Sides, Barbara. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I wish we were having you under better circumstances. True, true. I, You know, Barbara, I want to ask you, uh, what are you hearing from the families that you interact with? Are they talking about the Darnell Taylor case? Actually, I've not heard a lot of uh, comments about that case. Um, not that they're not thinking about it and discussing it, um, you know, in different formats and uh, arenas. But uh, there's not been a lot of uh, questions or input from the families so far about the situation. Um, and it could be that there's just not a whole lot of information either, uh, specifics about that whole family dynamics. So I want to ask, um, how did you come to join the Ohio Grandparent Kinship Coalition? Well, I, I um, was uh, working at the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services in the uh, late 90s. I, I went there. Um, to work in uh, uh, as a program developer with adoption, kinship, and foster care um, programs. And part of my responsibility was to implement the first statewide navigator program in Ohio uh, on a countywide basis, and I oversaw that program. And as a uh, part of that, I became involved with the Ohio Grandparent Kinship Coalition, which in itself started in 1998 as a result of a report that was done out of the Ohio Department of Aging. And it was started by a group of caregivers who felt that there was a need to bring the issues of kinship care families to the forefront. And at that point, I was representative from uh, the department, but then I, I have stayed involved even since my retirement because I feel a passion for the needs of caregiver families. I want to take a call from Scott in Columbus. He's a child therapist. Go ahead. Oh, hello. Um, yeah, I worked as a child therapist in this area for about 18 years. And um, I, I also had read a lot of researchers, including Andrew Vax, 
um, who was saying back in the 70s and 80s, um, he was making a couple of points about both the child welfare system and the court system. Um, and one is that if we professionalized uh, child welfare to the degree, like, say, that, you know, we train and fund, like, the military, um, it could truly be the front line in um, crime prevention, uh, mental health services, you know, prevent really a lot of things that we're spending billions of dollars on down the line. Um, and also he, he commented on the obsession w- with the courts and the, and the legal system of um, the biological family as the sacred thing. And really we should be looking at the family as a, a functional um, definition rather than a, a biological definition. So those were the kind of the points I wanted to, to comment on. <clears throat> Barbara, the funding element is something I know your organization has been involved with, particularly when it comes to kinship care. So state lawmakers created the kinship support system in 2020. And at the time, you said it was helpful, but not enough. So what else could Ohio do to help support kinship carers? Right. We... Um... The, the coalition feels that there have been attempts to provide support, financial support to caregivers. Um, a lot of those uh, supports are tied to a licensure process, uh, especially for those families who are involved with the child welfare system. Now, um, in the state, uh, there are significantly more kinship families that are relatives and non-relatives. Uh, there's over 100,000 of those families as opposed to about 4,000 children in kinship placements through the child welfare agencies in the state. So there's a significant number of families who are not involved in the system, and that's the best thing for them. They, We feel like uh, being with the kinship families is a better placement. Um, so the financial piece of that for those 4,000 families um, is tied to licensure, and licensure is not always uh, the best solution for families when they're t- caring for their relative children. And there are a lot of hoops to jump through. They don't really want the agencies involved in with their families. So we really support that families are provided that, that financial support, the, the service supports, without having to become a, a formal licensed foster home um, and support those families as well as the non, uh, the informal families with uh, state funds as well as federal funds. Yeah, and obviously, you know, what we know about the Darnell Taylor case is still very new and it's still emerging, so I'll put that caveat on this. But Mm -hmm. he was in this kind of outside the traditional system relationship. And I have no idea what was going on with Miss May at the time that this incident occurred, but it sounds like there were at least concerns going back a couple of months, and I have no way of knowing whether supports would have helped her, but it wouldn't have hurt, I don't think. I, I think you're right, and, and that, that's the issue is uh, the details of that whole situation it, it are not available, but, um, you know, the decisions were made. There may have been some decisions that could have been made differently in terms of supporting the, the caregivers, the relatives that were uh, involved with that child, but we just, we don't know those circumstances. But it, it com- the bottom line comes down to, in order to have successful kinship families, they they are very uh, resourceful and they will make do with very little as compared to some of the other family supports that foster families and adoptive families get. And they will sacrifice, they will 
lose job or they will quit jobs. They will uh, put all their retirement into the care of that child to make sure that that child is taken care of and supported. So um, they they step up in spite of the lack of supports. Barbara, one interesting data point uh, that an organization here called Policy Matters Ohio found in 2021 is that Black children were more likely to end up in kinship care. Is that something that is true nationwide, or is that something maybe that's, like, is that just more common? I think because of the cultural nature of Black families, uh, they are very... um, protective of their family structure. And if the family knows whether it's a, you know, an aunt, uncle, a grandparent, even, you know, a real, another uh, uh, sibling, um, they, the culture in the black community is that they want to keep that child within the family, recognizing that that is the best place for the child. Because if the child, when the child goes into the child welfare system, there's no guarantee that that child will be placed with the same culture and will be placed with a black family because there are less resources in the child welfare system um, in terms of families, uh, black families represented. So they feel that that's the best place to be. And um, that family is going to surround that child with all the supports that they have available to them. Sarah, is that, do you see something similar or do you have anything to add? Yeah, no, I, I don't, I'm, I can't speak to specific statistics on that likelihood, but we do know that, um, that, you know, there's, uh, you know, racial disproportionalities and disparities continue to exist in the child welfare system. I mean, black children are more likely to be reported and identified as victims of maltreatment to enter care. And, you know, they're less likely than white children to exit foster care in a timely manner or be adopted. So, you know, I, I agree with Barb's assessment that, you know, a lot of families, they they don't want to get involved with the child welfare system. Um, and, uh, you know, so it, it's, yeah, I can't speak to the specific statistics about likelihood of Black children being raised by um, relatives, but, you know, that is a cultural strength of, um, you know, of that community and that culture of, um, taking, you know, taking care of, of relatives and friends. So, And Sarah, the Family First Act gave states to the ability to define kin how they wanted to. Do we, do we all define it very differently or are there certain like commonalities? Like everybody knows it probably means grandparents, aunts and uncles. Uh, I'm not sure about what was in Family First, but the new regulation that was passed back in September that I was referencing earlier does allow states to define what they mean by kin. Um, and, you know, usually that is, you know, blood relatives or close family friends. And, you know, I'd, you know, I'd, and I, uh, you know, I'd, I think that's a really a, a great shift in, in allowing states to do that because it's different in every community. And, you know, I know I have, I live far away from my family, but I have my chosen family in my community, you know, and I define who that is. Um, so, you know, I think everyone should be afforded the ability to, you know, define um, what family is to them outside of, of blood relations. I want to take a quick call from Francis in Columbus. Go ahead. Uh, yes, I'm considering uh, volunteering to help children who are transitioning from foster care into life and uh, to help them learn how to manage money and whatever they need 
and to make them uh, so they are self-sufficient. And I was wondering if there was a need for that. I guess, Barbara, we can start with you. Do we need more uh, mentors for children uh, aging out? More, yes, definitely. Those those children are very vulnerable um, because at the age that they that the system says that they're ready to be independent, they're not. Uh, they still need adult uh, help and guidance. And so, yes, there is a great need. I would say uh, contact your children's services agency because they are the ones that are structuring the independent living programs. And once a child is released to uh, to the community, then that's really when they need uh, continued adult connections to society. Anything to add, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, I just, I, you know, I, I would like to point out that, um, you know, about, you know, unfortunately, about 10% of children who exit foster care, you know, age out of care without any type of, mm-hmm. you know, what we, you know, a legal form of, of permanency. And, you know, these are young people who are, you know, essentially failed by the system. Um, and, you know, you, you know, most, you know, all states, I believe, have extended um, the uh, age, the upper limit age of foster care to 21, some states up to 23. Um, and, you know, if you think about when you were 20 years old, were you ready to live on your <laughs> own without any kind of support? Um, you know, and, and that's on top of, you know, maybe you spent the last three or four years in a foster care placement before you aged out of the system, mm-hmm. um, or you grew up in the system, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, a lot of times children in foster care lack what we call normalcy, which is, you know, being able to have a bank account, have a job. How do you, you know, all of those things that, you know, you, you learn in those later teen years, um, a lot of times children and um, young people in foster care just, you know, they don't have those opportunities to learn those skills. So, um, you know, anyone who's willing to be a support and mentor for anyone of any age involved in child welfare, you know, is, um, is, is welcome, I would say. Yeah, I'm 40 years old and I still call my mom once a week. <laughs> My goal is to do my taxes without having to call my mom who was an accountant. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, Barbara, I just want to thank you so much for coming on today. Um, It's, you know, it's been I think it's been a great conversation and really informative. And again, Barbara is a board member for the Ohio Grandparent Kinship Coalition. Um, Any final thoughts? Um, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about kinship because it it definitely is not a system that's going to go away anytime soon. Um, I think the realization that kinship caregivers are a necessary part of of the the support of children who are in need is uh, becoming more aware. And and our group is advocating to make sure that the, the systems that support these families really support them in the way that they need to be supported. Um, Not necessarily what those groups think they need, but actually listen to those families and meet their needs with um, uh, adequate supports. Thank you. And thank you to Sarah Catherine Williams, a senior research scientist at Child Trends.